Well, I want to begin by wishing all my brothers out there a happy Father's Day. I want to let you know we appreciate you, we honor you, your role is important, and uh, you know these days you don't uh, get a lot of honor recognition in society, but uh, you are honored here, and uh, your role is valued here, so I want to let you know that. We need good men, and uh, especially in the days uh, ahead of us, and so uh, men, we are grateful for you. Well, we're going to continue our study of the book of Isaiah. We're in the fourth major section of the book, which is chapters 24 through 27. And uh, last week we began our study of this section, chapters 24 through 27. And if you remember, we spent some time at the beginning of last week's message discussing what I called the doctrine of divine self-defense. And that is the clear teaching of Scripture, as stated in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, that Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is a warrior who fights. And why does he fight? He fights to protect his children. Why do his children need protection? Because there are great powers of evil that come to kill and steal and destroy. And so God fights to protect his children so that they can safely pass over into the kingdom he has prepared for them. And therefore, God's wrath is poured out upon the devil upon Satan, the demons, and those who follow them in their wickedness in an unrepentant way. And he pours out his wrath on them because he is a God of love. And because he is a God of love, he will not allow the oppression and the misery and death caused by unrepentant evil to continue forever. As we said last week, God didn't start this war, but he will finish it. So after discussing the doctrine of divine self-defense from Exodus chapter 15 and other passages, we began our study of Isaiah chapter 24, which is a sobering prophecy of the judgments which will be poured out on the wicked during the great tribulation. And then we study chapter 25, which is a joyous prophecy of the gracious blessings that God will pour out on the redeemed after the second coming of Christ. Now this morning we're going to continue on into chapter 26 and then next time we'll study chapter 27. So this morning we're going to be studying the doctrine of salvation by faith which is taught in chapter 26 and then next time we'll look at the exhortation to make peace with God in chapter 27. But if you're kind of looking for kind of a general outline of this whole section, the four chapters in this fourth section of the book of Isaiah, it would be as follows. Chapter 24, our tribulation judgments. Chapter 25, our kingdom blessings. Chapter 26, the theme is salvation by faith. And chapter 27, the theme is make peace or perish. And so that's kind of the general outline for this section. So let's dive into our chapter for this morning, which is chapter 26. And the main theme of chapter 26 is salvation by faith. Salvation by faith. Chapter 26 begins with a prophecy. And it is a prophecy which reveals the words of a song which will be sung in the land of Judah in the end times. Look at Chapter 26, verse 1, it says, In that day, referring to the coming day of the Lord, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And so this is, again, an eschatological prophecy, and it is a prophecy written 2,700 years ago about a specific song which will be sung in a specific place. It is a song which the text says will be sung in the land of Judah. And the song goes from the second part of verse 1 all the way to the end of verse 6. Why is this song going to be sung? Well, because... During the tribulation, 144,000 Jews come to faith in Christ and then they evangelize the whole world during the tribulation period, enduring the persecutions of the Antichrist and all of the sufferings of the tribulation. And after enduring so much suffering during the tribulation, there is great rejoicing when Christ returns. 
And so just like Israel sung a song of thanksgiving and praise after God saved them from Pharaoh as he brought them through the Red Sea, after the Lord comes back and all of the sufferings of the tribulation period are put to an end, they will again sing a song of praise and of deliverance for what God has done from them. Just as he saved them from the hand of Pharaoh, he will save them from the hand of the Antichrist and they will sing this song in praise to him. Let's read the words of the song together. They will sing a song that goes like this. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it. The feet of the afflicted. The steps of the helpless. That is the song of praise that will be sung after the Antichrist and his armies which surrounded Jerusalem are defeated by Christ. In the second half of verse one, the song therefore begins, and again, this is a celebration of Jerusalem's deliverance from the armies that surrounded it. And in verse two, a celebratory call rings out, open the gates of Jerusalem. Sorry, what did I, must have, open the gates not as wide with your arms, Brett, because then you make a loud sound. Although that was actually pretty cool. You know, maybe, maybe we can, I don't know if we can do that. Maybe every time I say, open the gates, this, it's like a gate sound. I, I wish I could say that was planned. That was pretty cool. What were we talking about? <laughs> you know, sometimes I distract myself, you know. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's bad when you're preaching and you lose your audience. It's really bad if you lose yourself. That's, you know, so anyway. So in verse 2, the celebratory call rings out, open fairly wide, the gates of Jerusalem. And this is a really key moment because prior to this, Jerusalem has been in defense mode, right? A city that is under attack closes everything, right? And, and defensive barriers are constructed and, and controls are put on who can go in and out of the city to prevent saboteurs from coming into the city. And so this call that says open the gates is a celebration that the war is over. The Antichrist has been defeated. The fighting is over. So the defenses can be lowered. The city can be opened now for a great celebration. But notice that there's a requirement for participation in this celebration. We know that when the Lord returns, he's going to enter into judgment and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats and only the redeemed will enter the city. The righteous nation, it says in verse 2, may enter, and only the righteous. Well, who are the righteous? He says, the one that remains faithful. The English Standard Version translates this phrase as, the righteous nation that keeps faith. Other versions translate it as, the righteous nation that keeps the faith. In other words, this is those who, despite the persecution of the Antichrist, stayed true to their faith, stayed true to the gospel, stayed true to the truth of who God is and who Christ is. They didn't capitulate to the deceptions of the Antichrist. It's those who keep faith, those who are faithful, remain faithful, who will be able to enter the city. So, Entrance to the city is reserved for those who are righteous, and they are righteous because they believe and stayed true to their faith to the end. Well, that brings us now in the song to verse 3, and verse 3 is one of, and I think rightly so, one of the most memorized and cherished verses in the book of Isaiah, if not in all of Scripture. Look at verse 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. What a beautiful verse many of you probably memorized the King James version which is so beautiful in its older English thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee 
one of the members was reminding me after the first service that the King James translation stayed upon the kind of borrows from nautical terminology of a ship securely fastened and held firm even despite a storm. Well, what does it mean to have a steadfast mind? Or as the King James puts it, a mind which has stayed upon thee. Well, the root of the Hebrew word used here is often translated as relying upon someone or something or resting upon someone or something, leaning against something, being fastened securely to something. It has the idea of permanence. And the specific form used here means, according to Motier, to be steady and undeviating. It means to be in a continuing state of reliance upon the Lord or according to another dictionary, to have a sustained type of trust. But I think maybe the best definition is the simple one given in the MacArthur Study Bible, which defines it this way. It is, quote, a fixed disposition of trust in the Lord. A steadfast mind, to have a steadfast mind means to have a fixed disposition of trust in the Lord. In other words, this is a consistent and constant kind of faith, a consistent and constant trust, not a wishy-washy, on-again, off-again kind of trust. To have a steadfast mind is to keep your heart and your mind fixed upon God, and that means to keep him in the center of your thoughts, the center of your plans, the center of your desires, the center of your relationships, the center of your communication, the center of your worldview, the center of your decisions. It means to focus your mind on him, to fix it upon him. When you're happy and when you're sad, when you're up and when you're down, when you're confident, when you're insecure, when you're afraid, or when you're doing well in all circumstances you are to keep him in the forefront of your mind and that means you can't compartmentalize you can't give him one area of your life or even of your intellectual life and then exclude him from others he is lord of all every academic discipline is a theological discipline because god made all things there's not a shred of life or a shred of the universe which is inherently secular. The division between the sacred and the secular is a totally pagan concept. It's a function of Greek dualism coming from Greek philosophy, not from Scripture, because Scripture teaches that whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And it says all things are from him and through him and to him. So you need to avoid becoming a functional atheist in certain areas of your life. For example, if I asked you, is God omnipresent? Is he present everywhere? You would, I hope, not commit heresy by denying that, but would affirm, yes, God is omnipresent. Where is that belief when you are tempted and alone? Because, see, you're actually never tempted and alone. You are tempted in the presence of God, quorum Deo, before his face. Where is your belief in the love of God when you are tempted to fall into self-pity or despair? Where is your belief in the omnipotence of God when you are tempted to worry. This is Father's Day, so man, I know that as providers, sometimes there's, there's just moments and situations that happen where financial stress really gets to you and you begin to worry, how am I going to provide for my family or what will happen if I lose my job or if, if this deal doesn't come through or, or something goes wrong? Have you forgotten that the lesson that God taught Elijah. God can feed people with crows, bringing them food if needed. He will meet the daily needs of you and your family. So where is your faith? Don't become a functional atheist in certain areas of your life where you think about things with God not in the picture, not in your thoughts about it. 
You need to have a steadfast mind, a mind which is so anchored to God that no circumstance can pull your mind very far from him. Your mind needs to be anchored to him. A ship anchor keeps the ship firmly rooted no matter where the winds and waves blow, it will remain stable. So don't compartmentalize. God needs to be in your thoughts, shaping your thoughts, molding your thoughts about all things at all times. So don't be what James 1.8 calls a double-minded man, right? We often struggle with being double-minded. We worship and we say that we trust the Lord, but then when hard times come, it's like, it's like God doesn't even exist. We worry and we fear and we, we bemoan things and we fall into despair as if God is not there or as if he's not good or if he's not powerful. And so James tells us, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. So to have a steadfast mind, I think, is kind of parallel to some other portions of Scripture. It means, I think, what Psalm 112 says. And it says, quote, fear the Lord and greatly delight in his commandments. And it says, if you do that, quote, you will not fear evil tidings, for your heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord, and your heart is upheld by God, so you will not fear. It means what I think Psalm 119, 165 talks about when it says that you love the law of the Lord and therefore you have great peace. I think it means what Isaiah said earlier in chapter 12, verse 2, when he said, quote, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. I think to have a steadfast mind means to apply Philippians 4, which says rejoice in the Lord always. And then it exhorts us to remember that the Lord is near. A steadfast mind doesn't forget that the Lord is near even in the hardest and darkest times. A steadfast mind remembers the exhortation in Philippians 4 to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the promise given there is similar to the one in Isaiah 26. It says, the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Well, how do you do that practically? What does it mean to have your mind stayed upon him? Well, I think Philippians 4 is a good practical application of it when we are given the exhortation whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is of good repute whatever is excellent and worthy of praise dwell on those things well what is most true most honorable right pure lovely good of repute excellent and worthy of praise it is God himself keep your mind fixed upon him so to summarize, to have a steadfast mind means to keep God in the forefront of your mind and trust in him at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances. It's to have a fixed disposition of trust in the Lord. So that's what it means to have a steadfast mind. Now look at the promise given to those who have a steadfast mind. It says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. The word peace here is the Hebrew term shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean the absence of fear. It doesn't just mean the absence of anxiety. It doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means having an overall state of well-being and blessing which comes from being in a right relationship with God. And notice that here it says that God will keep you in perfect peace. In the Hebrew, the word shalom is repeated twice. It says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in shalom, shalom. And in the Hebrew way of speaking, shalom, shalom is, is perfect peace. A peace, peace, a complete peace. So it's describing a peace, a well-being, a blessing, and a wholeness of soul which is complete and enduring and 
unassailable. And who brings this peace? Well, it is God who keeps you in shalom, shalom. In Isaiah 9, 6, God revealed that the coming Messiah will be the prince of shalom, the prince who brings shalom to you. The rest of the book of Isaiah makes clear that the shalom Christ brings is both individual as Christ brings repentant sinners into a right relationship with God and it is universal as Christ defeats the powers of wickedness and establishes his kingdom. In other words, Christ brings shalom to individuals as he redeems them and then in the end times he will bring shalom to the entire universe as Satan and the demons and all the unrepentant wicked will be defeated and judged and shalom will be established forever in the eschatological song of praise here in chapter 6 if you notice verses 1 and 2 and then verses 5 and 6 praise God for the universal peace he will bring through the defeat of evil and then the central verses, verses 3 and 4, praise him for the individual peace that he brings to those who trust in him. And the peace which Christ brings to individuals is both positional through reconciling them to God and practical by freeing them from their slavery to the fear of death. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 says about the work of Christ. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ came, he rendered powerless the devil who had the power of death, and therefore he freed us from our slavery to the fear of death. All fears are ultimately rooted in the fear of death. You fear spiders, why? Because you're afraid they can kill you. You fear, you know, heights, it's because you fear that you will fall and die. So all fears are ultimately rooted in the fear of evil and death. But Christ has rendered powerless the devil and he has freed us from our slavery to the fear of death. And so Christ, by reconciling us to God, that's our positional shalom, our positional peace, has given us the basis then for practical peace because our fear of death has been removed. Those who know Christ have true peace for their sins are forgiven and they have been given eternal life. Therefore, when we fear or when we give way to anxiety, we are acting and emoting in contradiction to the actual reality of our status. We have peace with God. We have been reconciled to God. We have eternal life. Therefore, all fear and all anxiety is experienced or lived out in contradiction to the reality that actually exists and we need to bring our practice into conformity with our position Christ has given us true peace it's exactly what he says in John chapter 14 verse 27 he says peace I leave with you you know um, you know, Christ at this point is preparing to go to the cross. He knows that he'll die, be raised, that he will ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's preparing for this. And he's telling his disciples what he's going to leave with them. You know, um, you know, if you're going away for a long time, sometimes you leave something really important for those you love. Well, this is what he left for us. Peace I leave with you my peace, my shalom, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Isn't this wonderful? You have been given the shalom of Christ, his shalom. What does he have to fear? perfect relationship with the Father. Life inherent in Him. 
that shalom he left with you, gave to you. So you need to bring your practice into conformity with your position. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Well, this is why we have the reality, the actual basis, the positional reality to say along with the psalmist in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh. So notice, he's not denying that there are evildoers in the world and dangers. But he's saying, if the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? If the Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Well, where's the source of this confidence? He says, a prayer. One thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. That's how you have to deal with your fears and anxieties and worries and your troubles of heart. You need to say, though a host encamp against me, right, you fear spiders, though a thousand spiders encamp against me, though I, you're afraid of heights, though I have to walk on, you know, the trusses of a building. I did that when I was a teen building houses. It was a little scary, I'll tell you. I will not fear. Why? Because I've asked the Lord that I can dwell in his house. So I trust. Man, it's Father's Day and you know, men like to watch the news. Can I ask, what do you do with the news? You know, um, unsurprisingly, based on biblical theology, which teaches the depravity of man, the news is not usually good news, right? Like, you know, if you ever doubt the depravity of man, just watch the news, right? It's like, yeah, it's like, humanity's pretty wicked, like really wicked. What do you, how do you respond to the news? I think we have a great danger of being a generation of men who hear all the bad news and just sit there and wring our hands and oh, how bad it is, how terrible it is, and we are filled with dread. And men, because we are filled with dread, our wives and our children are, feared with, are filled with dread. If they see you fear and you dread the powers of evil, they will fear and they will dread the powers of evil. You want to create fear issues and anxiety issues in your children, be a man who fears and dreads evil tidings and constantly bemoans how bad everything is and how strong the forces of evil are and how this is, you know, you know, the tsunami of evil is washing over this institution and that institution and these leaders are falling and this institution is falling and even the country's falling and the world's falling and the sky is falling and everything is falling and stop being such a panic monger. God is still on his throne. Look above it all. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Why? Because I know, yes, look, dread comes upon us, right? Dread naturally comes upon anyone who realizes that an evil power is stronger than he is. Right? I mean, you're going to be filled with dread if there is a force so greatly stronger than you that you know you can do nothing to stop it. That's where dread comes from. And 
let's be honest Satan and the demonic forces and the world powers that they control are stronger than you they're stronger than me they're strong of all of us put together that's where dread comes from but there is one who is above them all and is mightier than they And so the text says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Not because he trusts in himself or that the churches will be so wonderful or that the country will do well or nothing of that. No, his heart is steadfast because he trusts in you. In other words, faith is the key which unlocks the treasures of God's perfect peace. You want to be the kind of man who, as the old saying goes, can laugh in the face of danger. You want to be the type of man who can stand against all of the, the powers of wickedness and evil that are arrayed against this world and stand firm, then you need to be the type of man who has a steadfast mind and trust in the Lord and therefore you are kept in perfect peace. You remain calm in the face of of battle. There are really three major thoughts there in verse 3. There is a premise, a promise, and a precondition. The premise is that we must keep our minds fixed upon God. The promise is that if we do so, God will keep us in perfect peace, in perfect tranquility, perfect calmness of spirit. But the precondition is that we must trust in Him, not in our own strength, not in human leaders, not in human institutions, but in Him alone. Are you doing this? Are you keeping your mind consistently focused on God at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances? If so, this promise is yours. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusteth trusteth in thee. Sometimes our hearts waver, don't they, right? We waver out of that steadfast mind. Well, look at verse four. Here's the exhortation for those times. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Do you remember the passage where Isaiah describes God like a wall and evil like raindrops that beat against the wall? You know, to us, the forces of evil seem like this unstoppable tsunami. But there is an everlasting rock and the waves which crush men and crush institutions and crush whole countries will dash against that unmovable rock and they will be like raindrops beating against a wall. Isaiah later on is gonna say God takes all the powers of the evil nations and they are like dust on a scale that he merely blows and they fly away. They weigh nothing in comparison to his power. This is why we can trust, why we can be at peace, because the great powers of evil are no comparison to the infinite power of God. So remember that you can trust in the Lord forever because in, the, in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Well, verse 5 and 6 reminds us that to establish universal peace, God will defeat the evil forces that oppress the afflicted and the helpless children of God, verses 4 and 5, or I'm sorry, verses 5 and 6. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city, right? So evil seems like this huge fortress city that you can't even attack, but it says God lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it. The feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless, all of the forces of the devil and all of those evil powers, they will be brought so low, so thrown into the dust that the foot of the helpless will trample them. In human strength, this person is helpless, yet he will walk on the ruins of the fortresses of evil. This is the eschatological song of praise. This is what they will sing after the Antichrist and all the world powers, the armies, the massive armies of the world are arrayed against little Jerusalem and there is absolutely no hope and then Christ returns and he lays them low into the dust and all of humanity is reminded who is king and who is all-powerful. 
Well, after the song of praise, the next passage contrasts the faith of the righteous with the stubborn hardness of heart of the unrepentant. Look at verses seven through 10. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Beloved, there's a tragic reality that is demonstrated in these verses, and that is that those who are unrepentant, those who perish, are those who refuse to learn from the blessings of common grace which God gives to them. He shows them kindness, and they refuse to learn from that kindness. Even though the wicked hate God, he shows them favor. That's the word used there in verse 10. Though the wicked is, is shown favor. They hate him, but he shows them favor. God loves his enemies. He does good to them. But instead of repenting, they interpret his kindness as weakness and a license to sin even more. Verse 10 again, though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. They mistake God's kindness for weakness. Paul warns against this very thing in Romans chapter two. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Oh, what a direct statement to our society. How many people right now are saying, God is a God of love. God is a God of kindness. God is a God of patience. Therefore, we can plunge into our perversions, parade them, wave a flag with the symbol of God's mercy and revel in our pride to such a society. The scripture says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. They have the right premise and the wrong conclusion. God is a God of kindness and tolerance and patience, but the kindness of God is given to lead us to repentance from sin, not indulgence in it. And so a warning goes out. The next verse in Romans says this, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Oh, dear friends, don't think lightly of the kindness of God. You need to understand that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And the tragic reality is that many people refuse to learn righteousness from God's kindness. And so, in the end, they will have to learn righteousness through his wrath. I want you to notice the contrast in verses nine and 10. There's a contrasting phrase, learning righteousness and not learning righteousness. Learning righteousness and not learning righteousness. Verse nine says, when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. They will finally learn the lesson. They'll learn it the hard way. Verse 10 says, though the wicked has shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. In other words, when God was kind and patient and tolerant, they didn't learn the lesson of his kindness and so they have to learn it through his wrath. So choose how you will learn the lesson. All humanity will learn the lesson of righteousness. 
and each will choose how they learn that lesson. And so, dear friend, learn righteousness from God's kindness so that you won't have to learn it from his judgments. Next, I want you to look at the astounding affirmation of the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone, which is found in verses 12 through 13. See, the inhabitants of the earth, we just just don't learn. God shows us favor, we don't learn. And so this wrath is coming. But how can anyone be saved from that wrath? Verses 12 and 13 are gonna tell us that shalom comes by grace through faith. Look at verses 12 and 13. Lord, you will establish shalom or peace for us. Since you have also performed for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other masters besides you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. This is an astounding statement. If you think that salvation by grace through faith alone is taught only in the New Testament, you haven't read these verses for sure. Notice what it says. It says that it is the Lord who establishes peace for us. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. We are reconciled to God by the work of God in the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. It is, according to verse 12, the Lord who establishes peace for us or on our behalf. This is salvation by grace. And then notice that it says that it is God who, quote, performed for us all our works. Even the works we do are the Lord's work in and through us. In other words, it's God's grace and God's work that brings shalom, not ours. And then notice verse 13, it says, even though other masters besides you have ruled us, he's lamenting, other masters have ruled us. Not the king of kings, other masters have ruled us. And he says, but through you alone we confess your name. Even confessing your name is something we can only do through you. We can't even confess your name on our own. Even for that, we're reliant upon you. In other words, even faith is a gift of God. The hold that evil powers have upon us is so strong that even our faith must be granted to us by God. It is not something we can generate or manufacture on our own. And that is clearly taught in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. No one can brag. You know what's different between me and and the unsaved? Well, I have great faith and they don't. Oh, you can't even boast about your faith because through you alone we confess your name. Even our faith is a gift of God. Notice in the rest of the chapter how human effort is portrayed as absolutely futile. In fact, an illustration is given of humanity being like a woman who labors and labors but gives birth only to the wind. And then the failure and futility of human effort is contrasted with the resurrection power of God. Listen to verses 14 through 19. The dead will not live, the departed spirits will not rise, right? So they they can't raise themselves. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. He's gonna fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. O Lord, now listen to this. This is the reality. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. When you ask the question, what what can people do? Well, you can't earn your way to heaven. You can't even confess God's name with, without him giving you the gift of faith. So what can you do? Well, this text answers it. You can whisper a prayer. 
you can ask, save me. Please save me. Give me faith to believe. Oh Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she rises and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth as it seems only to wind. All of our efforts, all of our writhing and our agony and all of our efforts to save ourselves, to bring life, eternal life for ourselves, and it's all like birthing wind. Notice verse 18, the next phrase, it says, we could not accomplish deliverance for the earth. We couldn't do it. Nor were inhabitants of the world born, but verse 19, here comes the resurrection power of God. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. Physical resurrection. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. We couldn't save ourselves. But then comes the resurrection power of God, and out of the dust the dead rise, and they shout for joy. Well, the chapter then ends, as we will this morning, with a prophetic exhortation to the believers who are going to endure the tribulation. And this is an exhortation to them for then, which is yet future, and yet there are lessons for us here as well, verses 20 through 21. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation passes over. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. These verses contain some interesting wording. It's wording which is designed to bring to the mind of the reader two times in history when God miraculously saved his people, the ark and the exodus. So when we read in verse 20, when it says, come my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you, the wording there alludes to a passage in Genesis 7, 16 when Noah enters the ark and the door is closed behind him. And so this allusion is designed to bring to the mind of the reader the closing of the ark after Noah enters it and his salvation from the flood, his deliverance from the flood. And then, it says, notice, notice at the end of verse 20, it says, hide for a little while until indignation passes over. Different translations translate this differently, but the word used here is the same word used in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, to describe the destroying angel passing over the people of Israel because they had the blood on their doorpost as judgment was being poured out on Pharaoh and the oppressing Egyptians. Hide for a little while until indignation passes over. And so here in verse 20, there's an intentional allusion to the ark and an intentional allusion to the exodus. And through that, Isaiah is reminding the people how God has delivered them in the past and he's using that reminder to exhort them to endure the tribulation sufferings which are still coming in the future. As we know from the book of Revelation there will be 144,000 Jews who are saved and then go out into the world and lead millions of Gentiles to Christ and then all of those redeemed people who are saved in the tribulation period suffer greatly under the persecution of the Antichrist and many, many are martyred, their blood is shed and while they are suffering, while they are being persecuted, while they are running and hiding and, and being slain as martyrs, they are supposed to remember how God saved Noah from the, during the flood, how God rescued Israel from the hand of Pharaoh during the Exodus and they are to remember that the flood of evil will 
They will be rescued from the flood of evil just as God rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh. He will rescue them from the hand of the Antichrist and there is coming a moment, verse 21, when behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place. As they're enduring these sufferings, they're supposed to remember the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. Christ is coming. And the powers of evil will come face to face with the one who is sovereign over all. That's hope and that's joy. And so we close this morning by bringing your, your mind back to what chapter 26 verse 3 says about where the state of your mind needs to be. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. How can you have a tranquil mind in a stormy world? How can you have a heart which does not fear evil tidings? How can you remain secure in God's shalom in the midst of a fallen, cursed, wicked, and degenerate generation? Well, keep your mind steadfast, fixed upon him. Trust in him, for in him we have an everlasting rock. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, evil is real. The forces of evil are powerful. They are more powerful than me. They are more powerful than my brothers and my sisters who are hearing this message. They are more powerful than all of us put together. We are the helpless ones. But Lord, you have said that the feet of the helpless will walk over the dust which remains from the destruction of evil. Help us to remember that and therefore not to give way to fear. Lord, when you were here ministering on earth, you preached in your Sermon on the Mount and gave instructions that we should not worry. Lord, your apostles commanded us to be anxious for nothing. Lord, help us to obey those commands. Lord, you've said that you left your shalom with us and so you said don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart fear. May we be obedient to that command. And Lord, we know that you've given us a firm basis on which we can apply that command for you have given us shalom. You have given us peace. And therefore, Lord, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. May that be true of each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please.